Good morning, church. Will you please open scripture with me to Matthew chapter 6. Our text this morning is Matthew chapter 6, verses 1 through 4. These are the words of Christ. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that, you may be praised by, that they may be praised by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. John Thornton uh, was an Englishman and a holy Christ-centered man who lived from 1720 to 1790. His son, Henry, was one of John, uh, William Wilberforce's closest friends. And at his death, John Thornton was the second wealthiest man in all of Europe. But crazier than his vast amount of wealth was the fact that each year he would give away half of his income to countless charitable causes. Particularly, he devoted his money to the furthering of the gospel through missions, Bible societies. He helped the poor tremendously and invested in all kinds of good endeavors. He personally supported the salary of Pastor John Newton, author of Amazing Grace and another close friend of William Wilberforce. And Thornton was so grateful for God's generous love to him in Christ that he poured out his resources and his life for the glory of God among others, especially the poor. I think John Thornton is a shining example of the truth of our passage today, which is this, that the generosity of God to his people overflows from his people. And the generosity of God to his people overflows from his people. John Thornton received much more than money from God, friends. He received forgiveness through Jesus Christ of all of his sins. He'd been made righteous through Christ and then devoted himself to living righteously with Christ and for Christ. And his giving to the glory of God was a direct result of God's generosity to him. And it was from God's generosity to him that he gave to others in need because the generosity of God to his people overflows from his people to others. But you don't have to be insanely rich like John Thornton in order to be able to give the way that Jesus is talking about in this passage. In fact, when Jesus preached this in the Sermon on the Mount, most, if not all, of the people who heard him that day were actually quite poor. And yet Jesus says this to them. He's not concerned so much about how much they're giving, a certain amount. He doesn't prescribe, but he is intensely concerned with the motive. Okay, he's intensely concerned with the motive. And so he begins in verse 1 by saying, Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. And with these words, Jesus turns a corner into a new section of the Sermon on the Mount. So in chapter 5, he begins by describing the character of the people who are part of his kingdom. So the Beatitudes describe who they are as sinners saved by grace and growing in Christ's likeness throughout their lives. 
Jesus talked about the function of his people as citizens of his kingdom, as salt and light in a world of darkness and decay. And he proclaimed that he himself is the fulfillment of all of the scriptures. They all lead to him. They all point to him. They all show us him. And then in verses 21 through 48 of chapter 5, Jesus detailed six major areas of life where his kingdom people live in righteousness toward others, with a righteousness that surpasses the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees. And then here in chapter 6, Jesus shifts focus from the righteousness of his kingdom people toward others to now looking at the righteousness of his kingdom people in their relationship with God. So we're looking at the righteousness of kingdom people. And first, Jesus shows what his kingdom people do. In short, they do righteousness. <laughs> they do righteousness. That is, they seek to conform their lives to the standard of who God is as it's held out to them in his word. These are the people who hunger and thirst for righteousness, as Jesus said in chapter 5. They hunger for righteousness because they don't have any righteousness of their own, but they know exactly where to go to get it. They go to the righteous one, Jesus Christ. And when they come to Christ by faith, he gives his righteousness to them in good measure and in grateful love. They spend the rest of their lives seeking that righteousness to others and in their relationship with God. They, as Jesus says, they practice righteousness, which means that they're doing those things that God commands. Well, so what kind of things does Jesus have in mind when he talks about practicing righteousness? What does he mean there? Well, to get at that, it's helpful for us to know that verse 1 is actually a heading verse, and everything down through verse 18 are three illustrations of what verse 1 is talking about. And so verse 1 introduces the subject of practicing righteousness, and then Jesus breaks down in three examples what we would call devotional righteousness or righteousness in our relationship with God, particularly through giving and praying and fasting. And then you'll see here that those are the three subjects Jesus is going to handle here at the first half of chapter 6. And so why did Jesus' kingdom people practice righteousness? Why do they do it? Why do they do it? What motivates them? I mean, that's an important question to answer. And how you answer it will actually reveal what you believe about the Sermon on the Mount. But remember what we kept going back to all summer. The, the logic of the Sermon on the Mount is that we can't do the Sermon on the Mount apart from the preacher of the Sermon on the Mount, which is Jesus. So it's because of our faith in Jesus and his saving work in us that we live and practice righteousness. And so the motive is that the reason that kingdom people do righteousness is for the glory of God and in grateful love for his kindness toward us and his son. That's the motive. Okay, that's what it is. Kingdom people practice righteousness because they want to bring glory to the righteous one who saved them from their sins. And so, as the Apostle John writes in his first epistle, we love him because he first loved us. Okay, we love him because he first loved us. But Jesus knows us and the temptations that befall us. Remember what the Apostle John said about Jesus. He didn't seek the praise of others. Why? Well, he says that he knew all people and he needed no one to bear witness about him or about man, for he himself knew what was in man. So Jesus knows our hearts. He knows who we are as human beings. 
And here in Matthew 6.1, Jesus gives us a warning about wandering, which is why the first word in chapter 6 is beware. Beware of what? Well, beware, he says, of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Beware of wandering from God-centered motives to self-centered motives, which is all too easy and all too natural. We've been practicing that since birth. Beware of that all-too-natural desire to do godly things from an ungodly motive to be noticed by others. Beware of being like the scribes and the Pharisees and other people of the world who practice their righteousness with one eye on themselves and one eye on other people so that they can make sure that what they're doing is being noticed. Well, when you've got your eye here and your eye there, who do you not have eyes for? God. We've got two eyes, and they both need to be there. Otherwise, the reward we get is only here. As we sing in the hymn, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. We are prone. And so Jesus tells us, beware of practicing your righteousness to be seen by others. And so Jesus' kingdom people practice righteousness from a heart that desires to glorify and love God. And this is the introduction to chapter 6, and it's what the three examples of giving and praying and fasting are going to elaborate on in detail. Jesus gives a warning about wandering into self-centered righteousness. And in verse 2, he introduces the subject that we're looking at today, which is giving to the needy. Giving to the needy. And he shows in verse 2 exactly how the world gives to the needy. He says, thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward in full. Okay, this is the self-word giving of world people. Okay, this is the self-word giving of world people, which stands in contrast to the kind of giving that Jesus desires for his kingdom people. So let's look at the self-word giving of world people. In other words, how does the world do charity? How does the world give to the needy? How does the world help those who are down and out? Well, let's look at what the people who belong to the world were doing when they gave to the needy. And by the way, just to clarify, when I use the term world people, I'm not simply talking about everybody who lives in the world. That would include us. That would include every single person. No, I mean the people who are part of the system of the world's values and the world's desires, which are in total and direct contrast to the desires and the values of the kingdom of God. So I'm talking about people who do not know Christ how do people who do not know Christ do charitable giving or, or serving or helping? Because it's not just about money. Well, see, first, Jesus assumes that some worldly people will give to the needy. Okay? It's very common. We have many celebrities who don't give a thought to Christ who go to Africa and they pour out their money and their time and their investments and they marshal a whole core of people to go serve those in need. And that's good insofar as it goes, but they don't do it from the motive that Jesus is talking about here. So the kind of giving that Jesus has here in view is what some translations have as the words do alms. Okay, so when you do alms, or you know that term almsgiving is an old term, it means basically just giving to the needy, like our ESV says. 
and it specifically means giving money or goods to the poor. And the idea is that the motive is going to be some kind of compassion, a, a tenderness of heart that wants to do good to somebody who needs it. People in the world do good from a compassionate heart. It's basically anything that a person would give to help someone in need. Um, time, resources, money, help, it, just, it doesn't really matter. Just are you helping somebody? World people give to the needy. And how does Jesus illustrate, though, how they give and why they give? Well, he says they sound trumpets before them in the streets and in the synagogues. I mean, that's kind of an interesting picture, right? Um, hey, anyone play the trumpet? Because I'm about to go and bring some stuff to the Union Gospel Mission. You want to come with? And let's go. Um, world people give in a way that draws attention to themselves. Today, you know, they might do it by posting a picture on Facebook or Instagram. Um, think of politicians with footage of them in a soup kitchen so that they can, you know, boost their political support, especially during election cycles. And they may do a, a selfie with a homeless person or a child in Africa or Haiti. It, you know, all for the sake of encouraging others to go and do likewise. They draw attention to themselves, which is the idea of Jesus' talk about blowing trumpets in the streets. There's actually no evidence that anybody actually literally blew trumpets in the streets when they gave. But there's a whole lot of this idea that they would go and draw attention to themselves however subtly they could. And, oh, you saw that? <laughs> You know, that's not how Jesus wants us to be giving. You know, and so this example of blowing trumpets in the streets, it kind of seems extreme, and that's the idea behind hyperbole, is it's like, what are you talking about? But, you know, we all know what he's saying. And his point is that world people like to draw attention to themselves as they help those in need, because we will glorify somebody one way or another, and if it's not going to be God, it's going to be us. Okay? We're made to worship. It's in our DNA. And if we're not going to worship God, we will substitute most often ourselves. So even our righteous works, apart from Christ, are what the prophet calls filthy rags. On the outside, they may look good, but on the inside, they're full of dead men's bones, like Jesus says to the Pharisees when he calls them hypocrites. They're hypocrites, Jesus says. And he, and he says that here in this verse. Don't give as the hypocrites do. And we're familiar with what hypocrites are, um, but commentator Charles Quarles, every time I read his name, I'm just like, okay, that's kind of an interesting name, Charles Quarles. But he, he says this, he explains the term hypocrites helpfully, and, and he helps us understand what it means. This is what he writes. The word hypocrites originally referred to a play actor who performed on the stage of the Greek or Roman theater Many ancient play actors aspired to be celebrities adored by the masses. They lived for the thrill of standing ovations and the prizes and awards sometimes presented for excellent dramatic performances. The hypocrites to whom Jesus referred were spiritual play actors who pretended to have a piety they did not actually possess in order to inspire the applause of a human audience. And this is what world people do. And this is precisely what Jesus says kingdom people should not do. And so why do they do that? Why do world people help the poor in a way that draws attention to themselves? Well, the easy answer is that they're dead in their sins and they live for themselves. Okay, that's the easy answer. 
Um, but the, the, the fuller answer has a little bit of a context to it, especially when it comes to giving. You see, God's word says a lot about helping the poor and the needy. All through the Bible, we read things like this. This is straight from the law of Moses. You shall, you shall not strip your vineyard bare, neither shall you gather the fallen grapes of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the poor and for the sojourner. I am the Lord your God. So if you own a vineyard, take the poor into account and plan not to get all the grapes you could. Leave some for people who don't have vineyards. Or this, blessed is the one who considers the poor, Psalm 41. Hey, God looks well upon considering the poor. And so the Jewish people knew how important the poor are to God. See, there are four groups throughout Scripture that are constantly singled out for special care and concern, okay, by God. Widows, fatherless, sojourners or aliens, and the poor. These are the four groups singled out by God for special care and concern. Even Jesus and his disciples, who themselves were pretty poor, even they had a money bag from which they would give to the poor, okay? And so when Judas went to go give the money for Jesus' betrayal, the disciples didn't blink an eye because they thought, well, he's just going to go give to the poor because that's what we do with the money bag. But as time went along, worldly-minded Jews who did not personally trust in Messiah developed some really bad ideas about giving to the poor. And we see these things in some, for, some of the books that are known as the Apocrypha. Okay, so you will have heard probably of the Apocrypha, which is that collection of books that Catholics have in their Bibles that, that Protestants and evangelicals do not, because we don't believe their scripture, and for good reason, as I'm going to show you here. What the, what the apocryphal books are, are ancient Jewish writings that were written somewhere between the time that the Old Testament was completed and the time of Christ. So between 400 and 0 BC, around then, is when these apocryphal books were written. Well, they talk about giving to the poor, so I want to just give you a few verses from the Apocrypha that might give us a hint at how world people think of giving to the poor. This might sound pretty familiar. So this is from the book of Tobit, chapter 12, verses 8 through 9. Prayer with fasting is good, but better than both is almsgiving with righteousness. A little with righteousness is better than wealth with wrongdoing. It's better to give alms than to lay up gold. For almsgiving saves from death and purges away every sin. Does that sound like scripture to you? Sounds like salvation by works to me. Reminds me of that little ditty from the Reformation. As soon as a coin in the coffer rings, a soul from purgatory springs, or in this case, your own soul will be saved. Well, what about the book, um, The Wisdom of Sirach? Here's a little, here's a little gem. Uh, as water extinguishes a blazing fire, so almsgiving atones for sin. <laughs> I thought the blood of Jesus atoned for sin. See, when we say we don't believe that the apocryphal books are scripture, we mean it. They flatly contradict the clear teaching of scripture. There's nothing of the voice of God in that. And so the church rightly rejects them. But the reason I bring it up is not to, to get into debates about what Scripture is. It's to show you how many of the Jews at the time of Christ thought about giving to the poor. Remember, these were Jewish writings written before the time of Christ. And, and we saw that many people looked at it as a means of salvation. 
And so they were doing what every person does who doesn't trust in Christ alone for salvation. That is, they heap up their good works, trying to make sure that God might have favor upon them so that at the day of judgment, they hope to be saved. That's, that's the heart of worldly religion. Take your pick. It doesn't matter. All worldly religion that's not biblical is going to put good works in for the work of Christ. And we might go, well, you know, I don't look at giving that way. Well, and, that, and that's good. I'm glad you don't. But I would ask, how easy is it for us who know Christ to do the very same thing functionally? And how easy is it to start with God's grace in Christ and then slip into a self-centered or works-based kind of a Christian life where we consciously or not so consciously, because it's subtle, start to put in praying and fasting and giving to the poor as, or serving in the church as a means of gaining God's favor? And this is exactly what Paul took the Galatians to task for. And so right at the heart of the letter to the Galatians, halfway through, he says, Oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? They had started with the gospel and then lapsed into works. In their case, it was because they were being deceived by false teachers. But often in our case, it's something subtle and we don't necessarily mean to do it. But that's what the human heart does as it battles the flesh, which is why we have to keep going back to the gospel every day. Because if we don't, we substitute something else. We end up putting our eyes on ourselves and congratulating ourselves that we're really serving God, and we hope he takes notice. And just in case he hasn't, thank God for social media. But notice what happens when we or anyone else seeks the praises of others as we help those in need. What does Jesus say the world people get for that kind of a giving? He says, truly I say to you, they have received their reward. And that word for reward is that it's actually a business term. And that business term means repaid or paid in full. Okay? So the idea is that when world people give and brag about what they've done, and someone says, hey, that's really cool, good for you, buddy, that's it. That's the reward. That's all you're getting. Nothing from God. No well done, good and faithful servant. No blessings in heaven. It's finished. You've got it. That's what you were after, and you get exactly what you want. Worldly people give in a worldly way and receive worldly praise. Kingdom people on the other hand, trust in Christ and give in a Christ-like way. And in contrast to the self-word giving of the world, I want to look now at the God-word giving of kingdom people. Okay, I want to look at the God-word giving of kingdom people. <clears throat> in other words, how do people who are saved by grace give to the needy? Well, look at verses 3 through 4. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. So let's look at what kingdom people do in their giving. Let's look at what they do. And first, notice that Jesus assumes that his people will be helping those in need. I mean, this is what normal Christianity looks like. If you ask any honest reader of the New Testament, what does, what does going rate Christianity look for for your average churchgoer? They'll say giving to the needy is, is involved in that. The generosity of God to his people overflows from his people. In fact, this is so much a part of the normal Christian life that this is what the Apostle James says about it. He says, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? 
If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. And someone will say, hey, what about that stuff you just read from the Apocrypha? Is it by grace and faith alone, right? And the answer is yes and amen. But many people have misunderstood what James is saying here, thinking that James is teaching some kind of salvation by grace plus works. But he's not actually doing that at all. We have to understand what he's focusing on. Because this is scripture, after all, and James cannot be contradicting salvation by faith alone because God's the one who inspired him to write that. What he's not saying is that faith in Christ can save only if it's supplemented by good works. That's, that's the heresy that the Apocrypha was embracing, that the Catholic view of salvation embraces. We don't, we don't go there. Okay, but what James is saying is that a genuine faith in Jesus will show itself to be real by resulting in good works, such as giving to the needy. Okay? Genuine faith in Jesus will show itself to be real by doing what real faith does. Okay, so by analogy, lungs show themselves to be real by breathing in oxygen and exhaling carbon dioxide. That's how you know they're real living lungs. That's what living lungs do. Okay, but it's not the breathing that makes the lungs living. It's the living lungs that make the breathing happen. So we, we have to get the order right. Faith results in works because that's what real faith does. It's not the works that are added to the faith to save. Is that crystal clear? Okay. So as Martin Luther famously said, faith alone saves, but faith that saves is never alone. That's the idea. And so kingdom people give to those in need. They give time, money, help. They give what love requires according to their ability. Okay, we're never held liable to give what we don't have. So all of it, knowing where all of our blessings come from, comes from the hand of God and for God's glory. And this kind of giving, by the way, is different than giving in the church. This is different than what people call the tithe. Okay? That's not what Jesus has in view. John MacArthur breaks down the distinction in a pretty handy way for us to help us understand what Jesus is talking about. He says this, he says, never in the history of the church have Christians been so bombarded with appeals to give money, many of them to legitimate and worthwhile causes. Knowing how and where to give is sometimes extremely difficult. Christians are to give regularly and systematically to the work of their local church. 1 Corinthians 16.2, we're told on the first day of the week, let each one of you put aside and save as he may prosper. This is giving to the local church. But we are also called to give directly to those in need when we have opportunity and ability. Both the Old and New Testaments make it clear that willing, generous giving has always, been, uh, has always characterized the faithful people of God. And Jesus in this passage is talking about giving to those in need, not giving to the church. And on the surface, this kind of thing may look pretty similar. In some cases, it'll look identical to the kind of giving of the world. So remember, the world gives to those in need also. But nothing could be further from the truth than to say that they're the same. 
Jesus says what? That, that his people should give in a way that doesn't draw attention to themselves. This is the idea behind don't let your right hand know what your left hand is doing and vice versa. Because most people were right-handed, and so when they would give to the poor, they would do so with their right hand. And Jesus is saying, in contrast to the people over there who were using both their hands to hold up the money and jingle it and go, oh, you noticed? Um, his people give quietly. Quiet faithfulness. They aren't thinking about what they've done after they've done it. They're, they're self-forgetful rather than self-seeking because their giving isn't about themselves. It's about God. And so they take care not to draw attention to themselves. They aren't rushing to Instagram. They're not going to church and saying, you know, I just want to thank God for the opportunity he gave me this week to give to so-and-so in need. I'm just so grateful. That's pious-sounding world people talk. Jesus' people don't spend their time reflecting on themselves about what they've done. And this is the idea behind Matthew 25. When Jesus, at that, at that judgment between the sheep and the goats, we call it the sheep-goat judgment in Matthew 25 that we read earlier, when Jesus, you get the idea that when Jesus is talking to his people at his return, they're like, when did we do that? And Jesus goes, what you did to the least of these, you did it to me. It's, it's kind of the opposite of the idea that they're sitting there congratulating themselves for it. So when Jesus says, come into my kingdom, they were like, well, that makes sense. I mean, I would receive me. <laughs> you know, they have, they're, they're, not, they're not the point. God is the point. Quiet faithfulness, motivated by the glory of God. This is what they do. The thing that sets apart the giving of kingdom people from the giving of the world isn't the giving itself, but the motive behind it. Why they do it is the key. And Jesus got to the heart of that motive earlier in the Sermon on the Mount. If you would flip with me just back to chapter 5, verses 14 through 16. This is the light of the world part. Jesus says, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Some people think, well, there's the contradiction, right? Jesus here in Matthew 5 says, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works. And then here he's saying, when you give, do it in secret so you don't even know about it. What, what gives, Jesus? How are we to give in secret if we're to let our light shine before others? But pay attention to what's happening in each passage. In chapter 5, light, letting your light shine before others it's not about doing the things in front of others. It's about why you're doing what you're doing, whether others see it or not. And why are you doing it? It's because they need to give glory to your Father who is in heaven. God's glory is the motive in letting your light shine. In chapter 6, Jesus is saying, watch out against putting yourself where only God belongs. Okay? In chapter 5, we don't want people to see us. We want them to see God. And in Matthew 6, the whole reason hypocrites give is in order to be seen by others and God is nowhere in view. Self-word people give and serve to be seen by others and what they get is praise from others and that's it. Godward people give and serve to glorify God and what they get is God's reward. God sees in secret, he sees the motives and he rewards openly. And Christians understandably get pretty squeamish when they're talking about rewards from God. 
right? So we're people who keep going back to salvation by grace alone and for the glory of God alone, right? That's at the heart of our confession. We don't want to be motivated by our own gain and good, right? We don't want to be motivated by our own gain. And yet we do want to say all that scripture says, and we want to go as far as scripture does, and we also don't want to fall short of going where scripture does. And scripture talks a whole awful lot about rewards. And listen to what Paul says in this very familiar passage that we heard earlier. For by grace you've been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, it's the gift of God. Not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We are created for good works. Okay? God prepared the good works. He saved us by grace for the good works. So it's, it's all of grace from beginning to end. And what we're seeing here from Jesus is that those good works, things like giving to those in need, God promises to reward us for when we're motivated by his glory. That's an amazing thing. God is a generous God who rewards us for the very works he gave us to do in the first place. <laughs> wow. That's God. But remember Jesus' warning about wandering in verse 1. Okay? How easy it is to slip back into selfward motives. Those subtle tricks of hearts that are still indwelt with sin. One day we will stand before Christ and he will evaluate everything we've done down to the motive. In Jeremiah 17.10, we're told that the Lord searches the heart and tests the mind to give to everyone according to his ways. And this is the judgment that Jesus, or that, yeah, that Jesus will give that Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians when he says, be careful how you're building, right? So we all start with Christ alone because otherwise we're not Christians. But as Christians, be careful how you do what you do. Listen to what Paul says. He says, for no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, those would be motives for the glory of God type of things. Okay, if that's how anyone builds, or, or wood, hay, straw, which would be kind of the self-centered motives that we have, each one's work will become manifest for the day will disclose it because it'll be revealed by fire. And the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. So all of them are Christians, otherwise they wouldn't all be saved. But not all Christians' work will stand the judgment. It matters why we do what we do. God is as concerned about why we do what we do as much as he's concerned about the things themselves which sounds like an awful good time for us to come before God and ask him to search our hearts and our minds and to ask him to reveal our motives to us in giving and serving. And friends, I guarantee that if you genuinely come before God asking him to reveal your motives to you, he delights to do so because what is he after, after all? His glory, your good, he delights to reward you. We can pray for that. And sometimes, if you just can't get to the bottom of why you're doing what you're doing, choose a motive. Don't sit there and, ah, you know, spend all your time worrying about what you're doing and why you're doing it. Just from that moment, pray and say, Lord, I don't know why, but I want to 
do it for this reason now. Please help me. Okay, and then go and be faithful. And someone might be here this morning realizing that they've been like the hypocrites who've tried to earn favor with God by their good works. And hopefully, if that's you, you've seen that you can never do good enough or give to the needy enough in order to wash your sins away. That's the stuff of the Apocrypha. It's not the stuff of Scripture. There's only one who can wash your sins away, and that's Jesus Christ the righteous who died for sinners like you and me. If you've not trusted Christ alone for salvation, he invites you this morning to put your trust in him, and he promises to give you his righteousness. And from that righteousness, his generous righteousness to you, you will overflow with his love to others because the generosity of God to his people overflows from his people. Perhaps you're a Christian who hasn't been trying to earn God's favor, but you've been stingy with what God has so richly given to you. And maybe you come to this passage this morning and hear Christ calling you to consider the poor as you have opportunity and means. And if that's you, the best way forward is to confess your sin to God and then begin giving because the first step of obedience is a single act of obedience. And if you're encouraged as you hear this because you see God's work in your life, turn around and give him the praise for it and say, thank you, amen. Help me, Lord, to be more faithful because we can joyfully give to those in need from hearts that want God to be glorified and we can do it because God was glorified to give us his son. Please pray with me. Father, what a a gracious and generous and good God you are. You teach us to call you Father of lights, who gives every good and perfect gift. Lord, we freely confess that we have far more gifts than we can possibly imagine, far more grace than we could possibly know, and far more opportunity than we can possibly avail ourselves of to respond to you in thankful love. Thank you this morning for the words of Christ that you have revealed to us your good pleasure that we would reflect your goodness to others in need. Help us to be faithful. Make us a people who abound with your generosity to others. Help us to be people who are motivated by your glory. Make us as Christians and as Sun Valley Church a people who are known to show your goodness to a world full of bad. And it's for the glory of Jesus Christ, your son, and in his name we pray, amen.